Welcome to this conversation of the Georgetown Literary Festival 2021, Microcosmos. Today, in this conversation, The Shifting Shores of Language, I'm pleased to welcome the distinguished writer from Japan, Mine Mizumura. Mine Mizumura is an internationally renowned novelist and critic based in Tokyo. She has published four books of fiction, three books of nonfiction, and co-authored a compilation of epistolary essays. She is acclaimed for her audacious experimentation and skillful storytelling. Her work pays homage to the Japanese literary tradition while breaking new ground. Four of her books, all of which have won major awards, including the Yomiuri Literature Award, have been translated into English by Juliet Winters Carpenter in close collaboration with the author. Please welcome Mine Mizumura. Hello, Mine. Thank you so much Hello. for being with us at the Georgetown oh, Literary thank you Festival. For thank you so much. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, I'd like to, to start by asking you um, about your growing up, your childhood. Um, mm -hmm. You grew up, you were born in Japan and mm -hmm. you spent your childhood there, but then you moved to, to the United States, um, Long Island, New York, at the age of 12. Mm -hmm. um, and you remained there for about 20 years, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. I'd like to know if you could tell us about how, what it was like growing up in two vastly different countries and particularly mm -hmm. um, how, how did that affect you as a writer later on, particularly okay. mm -hmm. speaking, listening and um, reading and then writing mm -hmm. also in, in two different languages. Mm -hmm. Okay, sure. Um, well, when I my parents told me that we would all be moving to New York, New York because of my father's job, and would be staying there for some time, I was simply happy, elated. I bragged about it to my friends, who all looked incredulous. You see, for many Japanese and I suppose for many others in the rest of the world, the United States at that time, this was in early 60s, seemed like a magical land, a land that was filled with with all that was wonderful, like Disneyland, rich, colorful, and unscarred by the war. But then that happy feeling gradually vanished as I, as I began my life in the States. Not being able to understand the language everyone spoke around me was a miserable experience, especially because I was just entering my adolescence when being accepted by one's peers becomes supremely important. I did not dislike the United States. Life was more comfortable. We lived in a house twice the size of a house in Tokyo. We had a car. We had a huge refrigerators, uh, one in the kitchen and another one in the basement. I think it's like your refrigerator. <laughs> People were kind, but I just felt miserable, too miserable even to uh, try even to master English. I escaped from my new environment by immersing myself in reading an old collection of modern Japanese literature my parents brought with them. For various reasons, I ended up staying in the United States for the next 20 years, as you said, uh, going to college and then even to graduate school. I always spoke Japanese at home. I was married early to a Japanese. And as a consequence, my spoken English remains to this day, to this day far from being fluent. But 20 years is a long time, and my reading and writing ability gradually and necessarily improved. 
I know I, I now find myself reading perhaps more English than Japanese, and that must inform my Japanese writing in one way or another. My editor tells me that my writing has a distinct, distinctive voice, my signature voice, but I don't know if that's true or he's just trying to make me feel good, as editors often do. <laughs> um, may, I'd like to touch a bit on about your, your novels, particularly your first novel. <clears throat> what I find interesting about your work is that your writing is decidedly contemporary, and yet you have a strong connection to the past. Um, mm. I think particularly with the early modernist Japanese writers, that's what I can see in, in your writing. Um, in fact, your first novel, Light and Darkness Continued, was a continuation of Natsume Soseki's unfinished final novel. Um, and also your, your third novel, a true novel, was a, a retelling of Emily Bronte's mm -hmm. Wuthering Heights, which is one of my favorite novels. Um, oh, good. <laughs> yes, but I find that I'm aspect of your work. Yes. Um, also, I love Soseki. He is also one of my, oh, my okay, favorite really? Japanese well. writers. Yes, and I've all, only, of course, read him in translation, um, but I really love his work. Oh, um, but I find that very fascinating that you you have this kind of conversation um, with, with writers like Soseki and, and also mm -hmm. Emily Bronte. And I'm wondering, is that, is that how you started writing? Was it a kind of... Um, perhaps a way to, to pay tribute, perhaps, to some of the writers who you admired? Yeah, I, I think definitely it was a tribute. And But my works are not only a tribute to literary works of the past. I think I was trying, through my works, to remind the readers that writing is not a matter of self-expression. You see, reading begets writing. So it's by reading the great works of the past that one can begin to aspire to become a meaningful writer a writer that keeps enriching one's literary heritage, as well as the entire literary heritage we humans have created together. And I believe this message has become especially important today when the writings by those who have hardly read anything are flooding our create everyday life. So I'm sure many of our audience have read Emily, uh, Emily Bronte's Weathering Heights. I, I was a great fan of hers too. But I doubt if there, I didn't know that you've <laughs> not to miss something. And I doubt, I don't know about uh, the condition, you know, literary situations in Malaysia, but I doubt if many of you have, uh, have heard of Natsume Soseki or let alone read uh, his last work, Light and Dark. Uh, so I appreciate your bringing his name up. Soseki, as you know, is considered the greater, greatest writer uh, modern Japan has produced, and Light and Dark, or Light and Darkness, one of his greatest works, if not the greatest. Soseki is still read, but not as much as before, and I wanted Japanese people to go back to him once again and to say to themselves how lucky we were to have had someone like him at the dawn of our modern literature. Absolutely. There's... Um... Was that something that was shocking or surprising to, <clears throat> to the Japanese literary landscape when to have someone, um, a young emerging writer um, with a, a new voice who is boldly taking this decision to, to continue and finish off the last, uh, the last unfinished novel of a great master? Was that something, how was it received in Japan? Was it uh, seen as a kind of bold and maybe even brazen act? Yeah, um, I, I think so. I've, 
I mean, many people criticized me, and I even heard of um, a high school teacher. I mean, there are so many things that came, but this is particularly in, sort of um, left an impression on me. I heard of a high school teacher who, who was so enraged at what I did that, you know, when he started talking about my work, his face turned red, and he oh. just lost, lost his words. So, but, um, you know, there, there was no internet at those times. And I, so, you know, you couldn't really <laughs> um, have that kind of, you know, um, mass hysteria that you have now. Mm -hmm. And luckily those people, those once enraged people are now um, dead. May their soul <laughs> rest in peace, as they say in English. So yes. um, I guess um, uh, time is a panacea for everything. It works to, um, um, you know, it doesn't solve all the problems, but it solves most of the problems. Yes, and, uh, and, and one of the reasons why I, I, um, I chose to write um, to write the continuation of Soseki is that it finished um, the novel uh, uh, Light and Dark is the most is a work that most resembles a detective story. It has a mm -hmm. strong plot. It's a it's a um, plot-driven novel, and mm -hmm. it was about to reach its climactic point, a point where the truth was about to be re revealed when Soseki suddenly died. So he had a stomach ulcer and suffered an overbleeding. Um, I felt terribly frustrated not knowing the end. And others must have felt the same because many readers, including novelists, critics, and scholars, made numerous conjectures as to how the story would have ended. So I said to myself, why not finish the novel myself? I had always admired Soseki, obviously, and read his work so many times that it, seems, it seemed easy enough to replicate his rather idiosyncratic style. And besides, it was the first and the only Soseki novel where a female protagonist appears alongside that of a male protagonist. Mm. And it's written in such a way that the reader's sympathy lies more with her than with him. So it seemed as, as if the novel was inviting me, a woman writer, to finish it. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, okay. The other thing I noticed about your work is that most, if not all, if, of your novels have been first published in the form of serialization in Japanese newspapers. Mm -hmm. And I know that that was, a, that was a, a way in which many of the early modernist writers like Soseki or Tanizaki um, and Kawabata mm -hmm. even, I think many of them used to publish their novels in that form. Um, is that a, still a tradition that is very strong in Japan today or was, or was your decision to publish as a serialization, a conscious decision um, to bring that tradition to life? Well, um I like working with the serialization format, and I'm very aware of the, you know, the indigenous nature, or not indigenous, but you know, I'm thankful that the, uh, it has continued. But I couldn't call it a conscious choice of my part because that's how many writers still write in Japan. Mm -hmm. We writers serialize in weekly magazines, monthly literary journals, and newspapers, and the serialization provides writers with a steady income which is mm. just what writers usually need. Yes. Uh, naturally, serialization has its drawbacks, especially if you're writing fiction. First, you need to have a pretty good idea of how your story is going to end before you start. Mm. 
Hanizaki, as you mentioned, um, sometimes started without thinking ahead and ended up with unfinished stories, many of them unfinished. <laughs> and only a writer of his caliber could get away with it yeah. and still be asked to start a new serialization. I couldn't do it, I mean, afford to do it. And secondly, you will be faced with a constant pressure to meet the deadline. Soseki is said to have developed this fatal stomach ulcer because of it. He was mm. writing in a daily newspaper year after year, which is horrible. Yeah. <laughs> so I usually make sure to have at least a, a vague notion of at least a vague notion of how my novel would end, and also have a hundred, a few, a few, few hundred pages written before the serialization starts. I think the tradition of serialization will continue for some time in the future, future. but I think it ceased long ago to have the impact it once did. Um, it's well known how eagerly the English and the American readers waited for Charles Dickens' next installment, and it was the same with the Japanese readers a long time ago. But now that we have so many other forms of art and entertainment, no one is holding her breath for the next installment up here. Uh, the whole excitement that came with the tradition is long gone, I think. And is it is that also affected by the the shift to digital media? Is because in the past, of course, those serializations appeared in print. Do they still just appear in print, or is it also do they also appear online? Serializ serialized. Oh, I'm so internet unsavvy that I don't even know <laughs> if they appear online. <laughs> but I think it's. In Japan, the print tradition is still quite strong. Yes. And like um, when I publish things, uh, when my books come out in English, I'm so surprised that so many reviews come out in, um, in you know, online magazines. But um, but um, in Japan, basically, you still basically have lots of uh, paper, you know, reviews that's printed on paper and nothing else. Oh, that's right. And yeah, so... Um, uh, I think the situation is a little bit uh, different, but now that people are shifting more and more toward the uh, uh, internet, I'm I just started serializing my um, you know my current novel um, few months three months ago maybe, and and my editor decided that so that people would be at least be interested or would at least know the existence of my serialization, he started to put it online. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's going to run my uh, the first three serializations online, so that people might be interested in buying mm. um, this um, literary magazine. Excellent. I'd like to talk now um, about your second novel, um, the second novel that you wrote in Japanese, but had, that has just been published in yeah. translation. Um, an I novel, it is called in English, um, but please later say for us the, the Japanese name. Um, as from what I've read, um, I'm, I'm currently reading it now, actually. Your novel. Thank you. <laughs> yes. How nice of you. I'm still getting through it. It's, okay. it's wonderful to read. Um, it's a semi-autobiographical novel um, that was mm -hmm. originally published in 1995. And mm -hmm. I would say it's a self-reflexive contemporary novel that mm -hmm. is a is a t contemporary take on the Japanese literary genre. Mm -hmm. Please correct me if I'm saying this wrong, but uh, no. sh shisho setsu? Shisho setsu. 
Some people mm. call it watakushi shotsutsu, watakushi meaning I. Aha, mm. uh-huh, so, I see, I. Okay, yes. And that's a form that first emerged around the Meiji era, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And um, Taisho era. No, uh, Taisho era, yes. Taisho okay. era, yeah. Taisho era. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm interested in that form also, this particular form of confessional novel, and why you chose to tell this story in this particular form. Was there something, what is it about that genre that... Um, allowed you or became the perfect vessel for this story? Well, I'm sort of embarrassed to say this, to confess American I know, but um, there wasn't much of a deep thought be- behind my decision to uh, call my second novel an I novel. Um, after my first book came out, that is after finishing the unfinished Soseki, I wanted to introduce myself to Japanese readers. I wanted to share with them what my upbringing was was like because it was rather unusually unusual, especially back then. I also wanted to share with them how how I had always wanted to become a writer. So I thought of writing an autobiography or fictionalized autobiography, to be precise. And since I had always been looking at Japanese literature from outside, I had always known that controversy over a confessional genre called the I novel had played an important role in the past. Some people valued it as a uniquely Japanese genre, and others vilified it as immature compared to what they thought was the most you know, authentic form of novel, which is based on the European novel. So I just thought it might be fun to use the generic name as the title for my semi-autobiographical work, because I was, you know, unlike other Japanese writers, I was so conscious of the whole entire history of Japanese literature. So that's why I chose, you know, without much, without, without thinking too much, I thought it'd be just fun to use it. Yes. Um, and the title also worked as, a, I hope, as a reminder for the Japanese readers that there had historically been this literary controversy over the notion of I novel. And I believe the controversy is still valid. Most of the I novels may be boring, but the best ones are the best literature we have produced in Japanese mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And an eye novel has been described by the book's translator, uh, Juliet Winters Carpenter, as Japan's first bilingual novel. Um, process of translation of the work into English, if I'm not mistaken, took about over a decade. Um, and you, she worked in very close collaboration with you to translate that work. What were mm-hmm. some of the... Could you describe the the bilingual nature of the work, and also what were the, the specific challenges of translating that work into English? Well, let me start by saying that uh, four of my books have been translated into English by Ms. Carpenter in close collaboration with me, and that process took nearly 10 years. And I yes. know the one that you're kindly reading right now, and which came out this spring, was the last book we did, and it mm. took a bit over two years, I think. Okay, so, yes. Not necessarily longer than my other books, but the challenges we faced this time were of a particular kind. Uh, unlike a typical Japanese fiction, which is pre- printed vertically, I now always printed horizontally because it's about by my bilingual experience of growing up in the States. And I wanted to include some English words and sentences in the novel, uh, replicating 
the horizontal format in the English translation didn't pose any problem, of course, but replicating the effect of seeing English in a Japanese text did. The book was promoted as a bilingual novel for commercial reasons, I suppose, but it would be an overstatement to call it a bilingual novel. English actually takes up only a small fraction of the novel. My Jap most Japanese do not read English fluently the way many people do in the rest of the world, like the, you, mm -hmm. like the way you do. So I had to keep it to a minimum. But still, the visual effects of seeing the visual effect of seeing two different writing systems juxtaposed, one Japanese <clears throat> and the other Latin alphabet, was an inter integral part of the novel. And that effect was impossible to replicate in the English translation. <clears throat> if the novel were translated into a language that uses the Latin alphabet, such as the current Malay language, you would lose that specific visual effect, but we'll, we'll still be able to juxtapose two different languages. But, sorry, <clears throat> no with the English translation, English, everything had to be in English. So Miss Carpenter and I resorted to using different typeface for those words and sentences that were in English in the original yes. original Japanese novel. I think our method worked but only at a certain extent, but I think it worked. I think it works too. Okay, um, it's a different you. typeface and it's also yeah, bold it's in English. Bold, yeah, the eye novel, an eye novel, um, is semi, or as you say, a fictionalized um, autobiography. And in that sense, it mirrors your own grappling with language, um, including your decision to return eventually to Japan and start writing <clears throat> in Japanese. Could you mm -hmm. tell us a bit more about that process and that decision? Okay. Um in fact, I had made that decision a long, long time ago. Like, um, I went to an art school just to escape from English. So, oh, wow. <laughs> and I think I was reading Zostoyevsky or somebody. And mm. I, I mean, and then I thought maybe I should become a writer. But, and that thought grew and grew as the years went by. So, and by the time I went to graduate school, I, I was already determined to go back to Japan, but it just took years to execute. So I had to, you know, I was just a sort of eternal graduate student because I was hesitant to go back. And then after I finally came, um, came back to Japan and began writing Japanese, there had indeed been moments when I did wonder whether my 20 years in the United States had been all wrong, that I had just wasted those years when I could have become, I could have done everything I could to absorb the English language. And this, especially if I was to become a writer, who would want to be a, a writer in the minor language um, who, when you could become a writer in English and have your work be instantly accessible to people all over the world, mm. um, including you, the Malaysian readers, many of whom are fluent readers uh, of English. But those moments of regret um, became less frequent, and now I'm fully content with the choice I've made. <clears throat> What's more, not only do I feel it my vocation to write in the Japanese language, but my mission to expand its linguistic and literary traditions and possibilities. I'm afraid I'm sounding a bit megalomaniacal, but I know that my time is running out. I will only have a few more productive years 
10 at the most. So my sense of urgency has become more intense than before, I think. Excuse me. Um, there is one passage that I really loved um, towards the beginning of the book, and I'm wondering if you actually experienced something like this um, yourself when you talk about um, the character is looking out of the window and seeing the mm. snow and thinking about yeah. the Yamamba, um, <laughs> these, these mythical, mythological yes. beings, this kind of old crone women mm. um, who are calling her back to... Mm to the not just Japan, but the ancient um, realm and language and earth and culture of Japan, I think. There's this kind of, the, to maybe retrace her ancestry and that connection to that, to that primordial um, presence. Did you feel something like that yourself? Well, um, I think that was like a sort of, every, all the feelings that I had, like, uh, sort of um you know uh, um like crashed into one moment and mm. it's not really there there I can't say that there was a specific specific moment like that but whenever I, I remember whenever whenever I saw snow falling in New York or in Connecticut mm. in that um that uh, you know fictional world I, I saw the difference between Japanese snow and the American snow. American mm. snow was so much more drier. And I remember that tactile sense of how Japanese snow felt. And mm. it was a constant reminder of how we, we grew up in different um, environments and how, we, how everything was different, even something like snow. And that... And I, I, I lived with my grandmother, who was a very ancient woman. And whenever I thought of Japanese writing, somehow uh, the whole notion of wanting to go back to Japan was related to all these childhood memories, which included my grandmother's presence. And all those were sort of, uh, you know, um, concrete, concretized in that moment that I describe mm -hmm. in the book. Yes, I love, I love that passage very much. Okay, thank um, you. You, as you were talking about earlier, um, this the kind of struggle of not just your own struggle, but Japanese and also languages that are perhaps not seen as um, the, of a universal language. Um, right. Yeah. So <laughs> your your essay, your seminal work, actually of nonfiction, um, the fall of language in the age of English. I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. That was also through your own grappling with language, was that something that you really felt strongly about, that, that also your decision to, to write in Japanese? Um, did you feel, and you in particular, because you were in the United States and you had this, um, you were actually straddling these two worlds as, as a writer as well, did you really feel that the, there's this kind of dominance of, of English as a global language, that it is eroding or... or could possibly erode some of the local languages. Although Japanese is a major world language as well, but even in Japanese, that you felt that there's something, there's a kind of danger um, that is present with the predominance of English and that languages like Japanese and definitely even so-called minor languages um, will really have to struggle to keep their language and, and literary traditions alive. Could you talk a little bit about that, please? Yes, well... Um 
I think we we often talk about the downfall of uh, not only of languages but literature in general, and so it's hard to tell if what we perceive as you know people reading less and less and literature being less and less important can be reduced to the uh, influence of English. And I don't think that's the case. It's, we live in a more, more mass-oriented society. We grab, uh, grab you know, we're after uh, everything that's new. The news cycle is very quick, et cetera, et cetera. So there are many factors that contribute to um, um, I, what one often perceives as the um, de- and, you know, degeneration of language, but since I'm a writer, I want I'm and not a social scientist. I wanted to talk, pick up that particular aspect um, of current world that might contribute to um, you know, de- degeneration of literature, and I think I was pretty much conscious of it m- much more than the Japanese other Japanese writers. Um, um, and and that's why I started writing the form of language in the age of English. I started out as a I started writing it as a sort of um, short essay um, for a collection of my essays. But that book just grew and grew, and it took me seven years to write and two more years to help translate it. So yeah. um, and because I started late as a writer and. As it was taking me forever to write the book, I used to curse myself for wasting so much time on a nonfiction work when I should have been working uh, on fiction. But I'm now glad I wrote the book. I was able to figure out, uh, figure out in my own way why the Japanese language was able to survive and thrive in the way it has. I also learned so much about the current state of other languages and also about the inevitability of the rise of English. Um, it's it's true that the growing dominance of English threatens to er- erode local languages and literatures. I think like we have more of expressions in katakana, which is like kat- katakana is a special s- script that we we use three kinds of script. We use hiragana, katakana, and Chinese characters. And, mm. and with katakana is a phonetic representation, often of foreign bar- borrowed words. So we have more and more of you know these words entering into Japanese language and often unnecessarily, you know, mm-hmm. um, if we use, we use the word American English word kitchen to use to describe kitchen. But mm-hmm. we had, we had a, you know, perfectly, um, you know, a perfect word to describe kitchen or to name a kitchen as it is. And, and we have so much katakana writing that now I, I fear that many um, people of the, the past generation have trouble reading contemporary literature, and I think that sort of thing is happening in other Europe, in, uh, European languages as well. They have lots of, um, f- uh, you know, French are suffering from these un- anglicized expressions. Um, but what I learned from um, writing the book is that we humans have always had need for a dominant language, what I call a universal language in my book. And I'm going to sound a bit academic, but uh, universal language is a written language that's read and written even by those people who do not speak the language. Mm-hmm. Historically, we had, we had various various universal languages in different parts of the world, Sanskrit, Latin, Chinese, Arabic, among others. And those language, languages were not only useful as a transactional language, 
that is a language, language used in trade or negotiations. They also allowed people who lived in a particular part of the world, um, but who spoke different languages to pursue knowledge together um, through a common language, language which is an ef most efficient way of pursuing truth. Just as it's most efficient for us to use the same mathematical language to pursue mathema mathematical truth, not that I've you know, acquired those skills, <laughs> but <laughs> the vast accumulation of knowledge we, enjoy, we humans enjoy today would not have been possible without those languages. And now, because of the advances in technology, we, ha we live in a single, interconnected, globalized world, and a single uni universal language that connects us all and that allows us to accumulate knowledge efficiently was bound to appear. And that language, by forces of history, such as the expansion of the British Empire and the rise of the US, turned out to be English. Um, if you ask me if the situation, I, I, well, I think the situation um, got even, English has gotten even more dominant after I wrote the book, um, which I think is inevitable. And at the same time, however, people around the world seems to, seem to have grown more con conscious of what this dominance would mean or might mean to their languages and literatures. Mm -hmm. And the choice we Japanese have is a relatively uncomplicated one because we already already have a strong national language. Unless we want our country to turn into an English-speaking one, which some crazy people actually do. But mm. unless we want that to happen, all we need to do is to prevent our, our language from deteriorating into a second-class language, to keep it fully functioning to keep using it as the language of instruction in universities, for example, and to keep reading its best works of literature. The choice people in the former British colonies need to make, for example, is much, much more complicated one, I think, as you well know. Uh, yeah. As a principle, I believe that the more languages there are, the richer the world. I would welcome Malaysian literature written in the Malay language to thrive, but then I completely understand those of you who would prefer to write in English. After all, English is the universal language. And that kind of diverse choice your country enjoys is a luxury we Japanese do not have. Um, I think life is full of irony. The mm -hmm. fall of language in the age of English bemoans the growing dominance of English. But it's because the book was translated into English and it's because we, Colleen and I, both speak English, that we can talk like this about the thread of English. This is true, so, yes. Yeah. This is I true. find the situation rather ironic, but not in a negative way. I fully mm. embrace the irony. Absolutely, so, it is. I also like this paradox, because if we, if we didn't have this common language English, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation. Right. Perhaps right. to an interpreter, but that's one level. It's another level of separation. Right, sure, um, yeah. Yes, but at the same time, I fully... Um, because I, I'm a literary translator as well, and mm -hmm. also from Malay into English, among other things, also from German into Malay. Yeah, it seems but like you're a fluent speaker of German, too. Definitely a fluent reader of German. I don't know okay. about speaker, but definitely a fluent reader. Um, okay. but, in, but also, I, I really do embrace this, uh, the thriving of local languages, but I, mm -hmm. I love the fact that we also have the ability now to translate yeah. them in, into mm -hmm. other languages. Mm -hmm. So yes, um, perhaps as a last question, if mm -hmm. 
if you may indulge me, if I can mm-hmm. ask what you are working on now. Oh, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> the title of my I haven't written in Japanese for quite a long time because I was you know working with you, Miss Julie, uh, Julie Winters Carpenter to translate mm-hmm. my own works into English. But now I'm I just began uh, a novel and it's called An Ambassador and His Wife. And it's supposed, the supposition is that it's being written by an American person, American man, um, who lives in Japan, but who's writing in Japanese. Oh. And it's, it's so fun because then I can bring in all sorts of really Japanese things, like mm-hmm. Japanese waka poetry from the 7th century, 10th century. Uh-huh. And wow. then I can ident- make him identify himself with, with a, um, someone from 15th century because he's always thinking, um, what Japan must have been like when, you know, when Japan that's lost forever, but his, 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 his brain is like a library of Japanese languages, oh. Japanese poetry, Japanese literature, mm-hmm. Japanese paintings, etc. So I can all bring all that into this, um, uh, this writing, which I wouldn't have been able to if he were ja- just another Japanese person writing in Japanese. So I oh, really that's... enjoy it, enjoy it, enjoy the process. I can't wait till it's translated into, into English. <laughs> I can read that in English. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Mine. I think, that, yes, thank you so much. I love the, the conversation. I could actually keep going on, but I think yeah. um, we'll stop now for, the, for okay. uh, the restrictions of time. Yeah, it was wonderful talking with you. Thank you I, so I much, really enjoyed it. Okay. I would really love to have you at the physically in Malaysia to come to the Georgetown Literary Festival. Perhaps one day that will be possible. Okay. Um, Once the travel becomes possible again, Uh we would love to invite you to Penang. Thank you very much.